1968, the National Council of Churches put forth a statement that was called the Imperatives of Peace and Responsibilities of Power. And they started to frame Vietnam as a sin that Americans needed to repent from. We violated the integrity of the Vietnamese. There's no question about that. Although in a funny way, you know, they're better off in North Vietnam than we are here. They are the little people fighting off that loveless power. Theirs is the spirit of 1776. I'm Philip Martin. And this is Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? On this episode, we're going to talk about the Protestant left and how the Republican Party evolved into an alliance with conservative Christian values. We'll start in 1968, the year Richard Nixon was elected president and the year the Protestant left started to lose its political clout. We have Professor Joe Gill with us, who teaches religious history at Boise State University in Idaho. Jill, welcome. Thank you. Before we talk about Nixon's election of 1968, tell us briefly about the Protestant left when you think about Christianity these days, and you think about the, the Protestant church these days, it's mostly associated with right-wing values, uh, conservative values. What was the Protestant left all about? They came out of the Protestant tradition that were part of the old progressives and the social gospel. They embraced the values of the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt, um, which is designed to, to, to think about social justice as is the method for loving your neighbor as yourself. And when the civil rights movement came, they looked at that through the lens of loving your neighbor as yourself, but hinging policy and faith to that hook of justice, because justice um, is connected to love. And uh, uh, in the question, let's say, of, uh, of sit-ins, when the person has to decide what is more important, the right of a person to own property and would it practice prejudice, or the right of a human being to be treated like a human being, the right of a Negro to have what others have taken for granted for a long time, it seems to me the church is right. So how did they basically lose that position, uh, if you will, the Protestant left? In 1968, the National Council of Churches put forth a statement that was called the Imperatives of Peace and Responsibilities of Power. And what they said in that was, we're not just going to criticized the Vietnam War. They said, no, you know what? We're going to look at the presuppositions that are informing our, our foreign policy that are, have got us into the mess of Vietnam. If we don't address those, then we're going to commit further sins like Vietnam. And they started to frame Vietnam as a sin that Americans needed to repent from. Oh, I and see. They, so, so, they, so a moral framework. Absolutely. Certainly we have violated the integrity of the Vietnamese. There's no question about that. They were speaking that kind of truth to power. They weren't pulling their punches. Although in a funny way, you know, they're better off in North Vietnam than we are here. They were very civil, and they believed in persuasion. They were liberals, not radicals. You know, they came in their three-piece suits. North Vietnamese have that fight. They are the little people fighting off that loveless power. Theirs is the spirit of 1776. Their communism emanates from their nationalism. The religious left is made of 30 denominations. And so you've got a lot of variety in there. But by 1968, the National Council of Churches had been able to get the critical mass of those denominations and their leadership 
against the Vietnam War. Americans and they know that the foreign aggressor eventually wearies and independence and reunification will one day be theirs. And, and they saw everything in it. They saw racism in it and militarism in it and unilateralism in it and pride in it and uh, greed in it and exploitation and colonialism. All these things that are going to continue to make wars and wars and wars. And it's based on American pride. We're not loving our neighbors ourselves. We're not building peace on a foundation of justice. The National Council of Churches had reached that point in 1968, and they were rooting it in their Christian values. Well, you know, Jill, I'm listening to this, and it almost makes me think, uh, how was a moral platform and one that spoke of having moral capital, how did, how was that, was that a match for Richard Nixon, who was Machiavellian and uh, knew how to... Yeah, you know, Nixon <laughs> didn't didn't care one whit about that. What Nixon is doing is is... You know, he's a politician, and he has to do math. He needs to get to 50% plus one. That's right. Prior to him, presidents had kind of put an arm around both the evangelical right and the Protestant left. They needed them both. They wanted photo shots and God cover from both of them. Nixon's going to make the political calculation that he doesn't need the religious left. He doesn't need to placate them because they've jumped too far out ahead of the pews. They're losing the young kids further to the left because they thought they were outside of the establishment at this point and viewed the Protestant left as being too tied to the establishment. And then grandma and grandpa on the pews and the parents are part of the silent majority. Nixon makes the calculation that he doesn't have to placate them, and he is going to run toward Billy Graham and the evangelical right. They can provide him the God cover he wants. But also, strategically, he is seeing that religion is part of the Southern strategy that can remake the Republican Party for generations. So where do you want to fish for votes? Do you want the white South um, because they're disaffected from the Democratic Party who had passed civil rights legislation. And you want the working class white ethnic North, many of whom are conservative Catholics. So if you want to get the South, not only do you use race, but they are the buckle on the Bible belt. And so conservative evangelicalism is based there. Billy Graham is their hero. So not only is Billy Graham just Nixon's friend and prayer partner and golfing buddy, but he becomes part of the campaign in 1968. And, um, and then he becomes almost an unofficial electoral advisor, um, uh, administration advisor, throughout Nixon's first term. Hello. Hello. Mr. President? Who's this? Billy? This is Billy Graham. How are you? I want to tell you that that's by far the best anybody has done on Vietnam. And uh, I've got an editorial in the New York Times on Friday, which I wrote this morning. They had it for you. Yesterday. Good. And I'm putting all the blame of this whole thing on Kennedy. That's right. He started the damn thing. And so you get Nixon knowing that Billy Graham and evangelicals can help him win the buckle on the Bible belt the conservative Catholics that are brought in in the administration to preach during his Sunday morning services. And Nixon started to have church services in the East Room of the White House every Sunday. And you could fit 300 people in that room. And the invitations for that were cued toward bringing in certain kinds of um, religious constituencies. This is something that was unprecedented. It's something that had not happened before the Nixon uh, campaign of 1968. They playing off of people's dislikes or antipathies in the context of religion, right? Politicians had always wanted to have God cover that religion can give them. What a great phrase, by the way. Yeah, you gotta have your you gotta have God blessing what you're doing, and particularly in a religious country like America. And so that was not unusual. What is unusual is the political calculus that's going into it, and the fact that 
Richard Nixon is moving to the next step where he's completely shunning mainline Protestants. He doesn't need them electorally anymore. So he's doing that on the one hand, and then using the evangelical right for these really intricate, you know, um, uh, electoral purposes. That was at a whole new level, and it sets the vector in place. And you've also, the other thing you have is that you've got the conservative right deciding that they're going to experiment with getting inside of a political party to help bring their vision of Christian America to the fore. But what about the Democratic Party itself? Did they see any yeah. advantages to having the religious left involved, uh, especially in the context of the civil rights movement? Yes. Uh, what exactly did they lose by not having their input? Oh, that, that's a fantastic question. You know, the, the religious left never really got inside a political party, but they would ally with, with political ends that they felt were um, reflecting their Christian values, which was love and social justice. So they were fine giving support to things like the New Deal and, and you know, the United Nations and, and civil rights and so on. And the Democratic Party embraced that. I mean, you know, Lyndon Johnson was willing to open up the Oval Office to not only Martin Luther King and the black leaders, but also the leaders of the National Council of Churches that had marched with Martin Luther King. Hello? Doctor? Yes, Mr. President. Well, I just uh, wanted to tell you that uh, how mighty proud I was of a lot of folks. Uh, what a good job I thought they'd done, and how many more now we've got to help uh, get out of their bondage. Yes, well, we, we are certainly all very happy about the outcome. It was just such a great victory, and I certainly appreciate your calling. In 1968, and actually, you know, in the, in the early part of the 1960s when the civil rights legislation was getting passed, they definitely were the big dogs institutionally and in terms of political clout. If the religious left wanted a, an audience, if their leaders wanted an audience with the White House, even if they were going to deliver a tough message, the uh, White House didn't put them off. But they weren't really electorally and officially kind of wrapped up together in the same way. So when the religious left steps out against the Vietnam War, that upsets Johnson. He still gives them audiences. He's trying to persuade them and get them back on, back on his side. But when um, Nixon pushes them away, what we need to do is, is kind of flash forward to the next stage of the marriage between the, the political right and, and the... Um, religious right which is under Ronald Reagan because when you get that gluing between Reagan and the moral majority with Jerry Falwell, the Democratic Party at that point, when you have God and country and patriotism and Protestantism woven that clearly together around those conservative values, the Democratic Party starts to view religion in that framework. And so almost, they almost start, anathema to their um, absolutely they they're the they're the, the diversity party which means they don't bring that conservative religion in because that conservative religion is dissing gay people and it's it's against the women's movement and it's 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 going um, kind of part of a backlash against um, civil rights legislation they're against affirmative action and so on and so the Democratic Party holds religion off at arm's length and they start to say it's okay to be religious but do it in your private world. And then that allows the Democratic Party to be framed, as um, Ann Coulter did in a book, the godless, the godless party. <laughs> <laughs> 
So don't tell me they're not preaching religion. Their idea of separation of church and state is separation of your church and state, while their church is the state. Um, the, the idea of, of godless, the church of liberalism, is that li liberalism is its own religion. And so it helps give the Republican Party the sense that they are the party of God. And the Democratic Party is the party of the secularists. And the, the religious left is kind of hanging out there, on, you know, kind of on their own. They know how to integrate religious language or spiritual values in with um, the policies that they believe in. But the Democratic Party is not doing it, not learning from that. Did this also leave black churches out in the cold? I mean, they have been yeah. very influential during the civil rights movement. But yes. here you have uh, white churches being courted. Uh, and yeah. by by the right and by the Republican Party. Yeah, uh, the black churches are the black church has always been uh, always connected faith and politics. That's been more of a, a controversial thing in the white churches. They just continued to do their thing, and the the, the black historic black churches always have had um, well. Yeah, this is complicated because some of them are conservative. So it depends on the issues, That's right? right. Yeah. Sometimes they would ally with the evangelical white folks on gay issues, and sometimes not. Um, mm -hmm. On poverty issues, they would be with the religious left. Uh, and it depended on the denomination and then within denominations. So the, the black churches are always working on behalf of the black community and the po political issues that speak to that community. I think, you know, the if you want to talk about the Democratic Party and their relationship with religion, they got into the problem with John Kerry. Okay, so John Kerry runs for president. He's a he's a faithful Catholic, but he's very awkward. Mm -hmm. in Two thousand and four, we're talking yeah, two thousand four. So he's a very faithful Catholic, mm -hmm. but he stumbles, and it's like his mouth is full of cotton when trying to talk about how his faith informs his politics. Because you don't do that in the Democratic Party. Uh, I don't know anybody. I'm I'm against abortion. I think everybody. Ought to be. And I think what we all ought to work to do is to have fewer abortions in this country and in the world. And we need to work And so he, even though he was a man of faith, he wasn't perceived that way by the electorate. So, so Barack Obama, let's flash forward to him. He did that fusion better than any Democratic candidate in a very long time mm. because he came out of the black tradition. Amazing. How sweet the sound that At a time when we have enormous deficits, uh, it's hard for me to ask seniors on a fixed income or young people with student loans or middle class families who can barely pay the bills to shoulder the burden alone. For me as a Christian, it also coincides with Jesus' teaching that for unto whom much is given, much shall be required. And there was folks that were in the Democratic Party going, ooh, baby, we should bottle that <laughs> and hope that our candidates can learn how to do that. Barack Obama just did it naturally. And it actually got a lot of young evangelicals to vote for Barack Obama because they could hear his faith 
pulsing underneath how he talked about politics. But then you get Hillary Clinton. She's been a lifelong Methodist. She used to teach Sunday school. She couldn't do it either because it's not part of the Democratic Party tradition. Those those Democratic candidates don't learn how to do that. Yeah, that's they seem uh, unnatural. Uh, they seem unnatural. like they're being thrown into a swimming pool and not, not knowing how to swim. Exactly. And you know, the vast majority of people that are in the Democratic Party that are candidates do have a faith tradition that they're coming out of. They're just used to keeping it on the private side. But we're at, in a religious country, you know, and that power of being able to bring your, your, your spiritual values and those vectors and connect those with your policy positions speaks to American voters because that's how they are. And so what, what became of the religious left? In the context of politics, you almost never hear about uh, what yeah. amounts to a movement or a, an organizational position by the religious left. That's right. How did that impact the religious right, which continues uh, to develop? Yeah, that's it, a great question. They, what some critics have said is that the religious left doesn't have a quote-unquote political ground game. Um, or well, some would say not, still, not a clue, right? Yeah. You know, and when I was growing up, I, I was um, split between a, um, a secular side of my family that were agnostic, atheists, and Democrats, and then a very evangelical part. And I don't even remember knowing that what, there was a religious left when I was growing up. I didn't discover a religious left until I got to graduate school because they weren't, um, uh, they weren't apparent in the public sphere in a way that I could see. The National Council of Churches, their institutional ecumenical structure, which was the big dog back in 1968, has shriveled down to almost nothing. But on the ground, the religious left congregations have stabilized their numbers, and they're still doing the same kind of work that they've always done. It's just more at a local level. And they're, they're not working inside any particular political party. That's not, I guess, how they do things. It's, it's But you would think they would have learned uh, from the religious right, uh, which has been so effective in its politics and of its allegiances with the Republican Party. It's, it's actually kind of an important thing because they view the role of the church and the church's power in a completely different way than the religious right. The religious right views their power as a religious community by getting engaged in politics and getting inside of a political party. That's been their whole gamble for what, the last 40 years, is you get inside the Republican Party at the grassroots up to the presidency, you're able to bring your values into the voting booths and then remake America, whether it's the Supreme Court or the school boards or what have you. That's the way of exercising power. The religious left, they're never going to get inside and learn from the religious right because they fundamentally disagree with that being what, the, what, what churches do. So the religious left said that's what the church needs to be. We need to speak truth to power and not ever become a sycophant or get inside of government. And that's why the, the religious left will never follow the lesson of the religious right because they're looking at what's happening from Ronald Reagan all the way through to George W. Bush and to President Trump and the evangelical coalition right now. And above all else, we know this. In America, we don't worship government, we worship God. And see, that's what the religious left doesn't want to do. You never want to hit your wagon for worldly ends to any political leader, any political system, any political party. You need to stand back and be the church, which is bigger than America. So, so what about you? 
how did you get involved in this? Why did you choose to study religion and, uh, and, and study the Protestant side of religion? My parents divorced when I was a little baby, and they were on opposite sides of this chasm. And so I lived it. And they had joint custody of me. And so when I was with my mother and stepfather, I was in a world of agnostics and atheists who looked at the, the television evangelists as, you know, bilking old, old ladies out of their savings. Um, and uh, they tended to be Franklin Roosevelt, uh, working class Democrats, um, firmly on that front. Then I would live with my father and my stepmother, who was Pentecostal. And so when I was with them, we would go to evangelical revivals. The 700 Club of Pat Robertson was on television every single day. One of our vacations was to go down, drive down the coast of Virginia and go to a taping of the 700 Club. And, and the, um, we were told to break our, our sinful records, you know, our record albums and, and so on. And so I lived across this chasm and I heard the smack talk between my parents. Now the religious left didn't exist, I, for, at least in my consciousness, I didn't know it was out there doing what it did. But I knew that my two sources of truth, my parents, fundamentally disagreed and that their faith uh, was reflected in um, their policy positions and how they voted. So in your opinion as a scholar, will there be room in American politics for a more nuanced approach to religion in the future? You mean bringing these two sides together? What do you mean with respect where, to where they might Where there might be a road that they, they travel together. Well, you know, the religious left has always been reaching out a hand to the religious right to find those points. And they said, can we collaborate? Because there's sections, there's sections of the evangelical right, evangelical community that do bend a little bit left. There are certain evangelical groups that have embraced a compassionate view of folks with AIDS and on poverty. Um, the, the Vineyard and Calvary Chapel movements have that kind of, a little bit of that wing in there where they're willing to do environmental and social justice stuff under an evangelical banner. They're not necessarily going to agree on issues like abortion. They might not agree on issues of women or gay and lesbian stuff. But yeah, there's some places, there's spaces where they can collaborate, and they have. And it's usually the religious left that's kind of reaching out that hand to the religious right and saying, come on, we can collaborate on this. Let's lock arms. Well, I did see one p point where they came together around these, around the separation of uh, children and their mothers and yes. fathers at the border, yes. uh, where at least the leadership of the religious yes. right seemed to agree with the religious left that yes. something had to be done. Uh, am, am I reading that correctly? I think so. There was there were some leaders, some not, but yes, there were some leaders that said because of the the way we view family. Um, yes, this is wrong. And the whole, every, all of our rhetoric around family and the importance of parents and keeping the parent-child bond close and all that, yes, this, does, is not, um, this is not consonant with our values, and we have problems with this. It's become so controversial that some evangelical leaders who have supported Trump, like Franklin Graham, yep, Billy Graham's son, are denouncing the policy. I think it's uh, disgraceful. It's terrible to see families ripped apart, and I don't uh, support that. Uh, one bit. Now, again, there were some folks on the evangelical right that, that uh, didn't want to risk their relationships to some extent, since making some of the same tough choices as people in the Republican Party are. How much do you speak truth to power in those moments, and how much do you, do you suck it up for the long game? Maybe they don't make a stand on immigration, but there are some that did, absolutely some that did. Jill, this has been an illuminating conversation, to say the least, and I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Heat and Light. If you like our show, please subscribe to us, and better yet, 
leave us a review, or tweet us at EatLightPod. And if you have your own story about 1968, we want to hear from you. Did you take part in a student rally? Maybe your parents or grandparents worked in the early days of Silicon Valley. We want to hear your 1968 stories and compile them into a bonus episode at the end of our season. Give us a call at 617-329-5248 and leave us your name, phone number, and your personal story about that pivotal year, 1968. That number again is 617-329-5248. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. On our next episode, we'll tell you how left-wing protests contributed to the election of Richard Nixon. Heat and Light is a production of The Conversation U.S. Learn more about us at heatlightpod.com or check the show notes. Our show is produced and engineered by Maria Muriel. Our associate producer is Jonathan Gang. And our executive producer, Maria Belinska. Our theme music is by Kenny Kuziak. I'm Philip Martin. See you next time.